Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 58 of the Ad Nauseam podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here in the vomitorium after a, a bit of a break from recording. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, we've had a hiatus. Yes, and the person I'm talking to, and the person you just heard, is Dr. David Noe, my good friend and my co-host. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing pretty well, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah, are you, are you feeling good tonight? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling great. It's, it's good to be back together mm-hmm. uh, with you, Jeff, and to have the chance to talk about the things we love. We took a little hiatus, right? We did. We recorded uh, Pay No Attention to the Girl Behind the Curtain. That's right. Delphi Oracle. Then we had the, I'm sure the listener didn't notice, but we had the episode with Heather MacDonald uh, kind of stitched together in advance. Mm-hmm. So we took a little break. We did. You did some traveling. I did some traveling. I went down to Florida. Mm-hmm. Right? Cawe Weirdum Floridianum. Yes. I was beware of Florida man. Yeah. Did you see any while you were down there? Did you see yeah, Florida there were men? some men down there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had some car rental problems. Oh, no. That's a story unto itself. Okay. I had a little bit of a catabasis. You did? Oh, definitely. I can oh. tell you about that later. Excellent. Well, that fits very well with what we're talking about I think tonight. it does. Yeah. Yes. That's why I brought it up. And yeah. I got to teach the great works of the Middle Ages. You did? Yes. Wow. Some Boethius, some oh, yeah. Bernard of Clairvaux, some Aquinas, uh, some Dante. Man. I love that Dante stuff. You got to teach this to some uh, eager sponge-like minds? Some eager young minds. Excellent. So absorbent, yes. right? At one time, I spilled my coffee, and I, I reached for the the role of bounty, and I said, no, these no. students will just soak it Absorbed. up. There was no need for the role exactly. of bounty. Exactly. <laughs> And I, I, I worked hard, I have to tell you, Winkle. I worked hard to bring them into the AN fold. You did? Yes. You think we're going to pick up some listeners from that well, crew? Well, I guess we'll see. Maybe right. they'll even get a shout-out. Speaking of which. Yes. Um, yes, our shout-out this week goes to uh, one Alyssa Berenger. Yes. Can I read this one? Yeah, please. Okay. So, a little about me. Alyssa says, I teach Latin to homeschool students aged 8 through 18 in the Chicago suburbs. She's out there in the burbs. When I'm not teaching Latin to kids... I'm teaching improvisational comedy to adults. Oh, nice. We I like ha- that combo. We should have her come and teach us a few yeah, things. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working to make my Latin classes as fun and engaging as my improv classes. That's not going to work. You don't think so? Fun and engaging? She's teaching Latin. Oh, come on. Okay. Come on, man. All right, all right. All right. My three-year-old has discovered that her most effective bedtime stalling tactic is asking me the Latin vocabulary for all the parts of her face. <laughs> I like this kid. Brilliant. This yeah. buys her a few minutes most nights, says Alyssa, because I'm a sucker. Oh, man. That, this is great. This is great stuff. So, great. Alyssa, thank you so much for being a loyal listener. Thank you for volunteering some of this information about yourself. Thank you for keeping the flame alive of Latin and classics instruction out there in Chicagoland. We're really grateful. Excellent. Yes. Thank you, Alyssa. All right, Dave. So, um, shall I shall I feel the opening quote this week? Yes. Can yeah. we can we tell the listeners what the episode concerns? Yeah, in case would... they didn't read one of the riveting titles that we throw up. Right. So this week we are talking about Joseph Campbell, the famous kind of public intellectual, the soup guy, right? But no, no, that, that's a different Campbell. No. Though he, he came from wealth. I mean, maybe that was part of his family. I don't know. So this is not about minestrone. No, as much as you want it to be. All right. All right. No mulligatawny <laughs> in this episode. It was just Joseph Campbell, the. Uh, the public intellectual most right. famous for uh, kind of his popularizing of the monomyth, the hero's journey. The monomyth. The monomyth. Okay. With this idea that 
you can take um, hero stories around the world. You can boil them down to essential elements to the degree that we see that pretty much everybody's just telling variations on the same story. Boiling? Boiling? Soup? Oh, man, you're not going to let this go, are no, you? No, I'm not. <laughs> we're just going to let it simmer through the whole episode. Man. So Joseph Campbell and the Hero's Journey. Yes. That's the working title we have. That's right. That's okay, right. so you're going to read us the opening quote, please. Let's hear this. Yes, and this comes from Campbell's uh, most famous book, which uh, has remained in print since 1949, his Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he writes, it is the business of mythology to reveal the specific dangers and techniques of the dark interior way from tragedy to comedy. Hence, the incidents are fantastic and unreal. They represent psychological, not physical triumphs. The passage of the mythological hero may be overground, but fundamentally it is inward, into depths where obscure resist- resistances are overcome and long-lost forgotten powers are revivified to be made available for the transfiguration of the world. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So this is labeled the monomyth. Right. And so for Campbell, the idea was is that um, when we read stories about you know the dragon slayer or we watch films about it, what we're really seeing is kind of a working out of what's going inside our psyches, our souls, whatever you call them, across the board. And so when the hero slays the dragon, that represents some kind of psychological development on your own part. Okay. So, so when Rocky Balboa, mm-hmm. right, uh, knocks unconscious Apollo Creed. Yes. Which is the second movie, if I'm not mistaken. Was it the second one? I can't remember. The third one's Mr. T. Right. And the fourth one is Dolph Lundgren. Oh, the Rocky, the the Russian guy. Yes. Yeah, or the Russian character. I, I would say. break you. Right. I can't remember the first one, though. No, I can't remember either. So forgettable. No, I just remember, you know, Adrian. Right. He's, he's chugging eggs and stuff. Raw eggs. Raw so eggs. he beats up someone in the first mm-hmm. movie, right? Yeah. And so this is... This is the monomyth that applies to him as well. Any, any myth, you name it, this applies, says Campbell. Yes, right. So we'll talk about, I mean, it's, it is not without controversy. Mm-hmm. It's not without disagreement. I, I would actually say that probably in this day and age, Campbell's probably more out of favor than mm. he is in favor in the academic world. Um, but we can, we can talk about these things. But yes, uh, any of these kind of, these hero type myths, um, I think Campbell would say there's something that, why are we drawn to them? But it's something we inherently recognize about ourselves in them. Okay. Yep. And is there Freudian influence on this? We're going to talk about that also, the notion of a dark interior. That seems very Freudian. It is. Uh, there is a lot of Freudian influence on, on Campbell. It's mostly coming from uh, Freud's rival, Jung. Oh. Though it's his Jungian archetypes and his idea about you know, the collective unconscious. That's what really uh, gives the foundation to what Campbell comes mm. up with. Yep. So well, it's like that old band Alphaville, right? Forever young? Forever young. Yeah. (laughs) In fine form tonight. All right. Thanks, Dr. Winkle. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the life and times of Ita et Opera, Mm -hmm. of uh, Joseph Campbell. Yep. Look at the contours of the hero's journey. Yep. See how it may or may not apply to some keynote classical myths and maybe some pop culture also. That's right. All right. Well, let's get right into it. Let's do it. All right. So we're going to begin with a little bit of biography on who was Joseph Campbell. I have to admit, uh, last month I attempted to read what I take to be kind of the official authorized biography of Joseph Campbell. It's called A Fire in the Mind. A Fire in the Mind. Yes. Um, what is this attempted to read? Well, I, I got about halfway through and I, and I, I, had, to, I had to put it aside. Mm-hmm. It was, it's, you know, have, you read, have you read biographies where you get the feeling that the, the author is way too much enamored of his subject? Yes. Yeah, and I find that insufferable. Right, so yeah. no critical sense. No. It, Not really telling the story, just looking for episodes of victory. Exactly, and so it kind of came off much more like a hagiography than mm. it was. Um, 
an informative biography. But the, the part of the problem I think that, that the biography had was Campbell himself, the way he describes his own life, he saw it in these same mythic terms that he writes about. And so it's like, it's hard to, and so, he, you know, all of his adventures as a, as a child in the forest are, you know, replete with <laughs> finding monsters and slaying them. And, and it just got to be too much. And I could, I could, I had to put it down. You put it down. I did. What about uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces? You've read excerpts, I assume. I have, you know, and I've, there have been classes where I've, I've, um, I've assigned that at least in, not in the whole, but in part. And one of the curious things I found about Campbell in that book is that as much as a popularizer as he was, I find um, so much of his writing impenetrable. Right. Yeah. Obscure. Obscure, uh, just difficult to, to read, right. just kind of plotting prose. Opaque. Opaque. Yeah, yeah. So, so less uh, tomato basil and more of a kind of, um, I don't know, meatball or something. You just can't get to the bottom of it. Exactly. Or really thick pea soup, perhaps. Yes. yes. Yeah. Exactly. So as we as we warm up for this, <laughs> I have to tell you that I've had some encounters with individuals who are, you know, not professional classicists mm -hmm. like ourselves, but who are very interested in this subject, mm -hmm. uh, fellow Christians, because as you know, I'm Christian. And when I tell them I teach classical myth, one uh, individual in particular said, oh, well, you know, I've read Joseph Campbell. That's all bunk. Mm. And so somewhere in the course of this episode, we have to, as I know, we're going to get right near the end, maybe. Um, what about applying Campbell's theories to the Christian faith? Sure. Right. Where does that leave us? And, sure, sure, sure. And this, this particular, you know, fellow believer was very, very threatened hmm. by Campbellian. I don't know if that's hmm. the term. Campbellite, uh, Campbellian ideas, yeah. was quite threatened by them and uh, just dismissed the whole thing. Yeah, I've encountered that same sentiment as well. Um, I, I think that maybe a lot of it comes from Campbell's kind of more Unitarian, kind of universalist approach to these kinds of things. So, I mean, for him, this was his religion. Okay. And he saw this as the things that bound uh, you know, all humanity together. And so I think certainly Campbell is, is kind of says, you know, there's... There's not a hierarchy of narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And so, which means, in layman's terms, that one story can be more important than another. Right, right. They they are all useful and all reflective of some some kind of deeper mystery. Right. Uh, but none uh, should be privileged over the other, and that's probably what I think a lot of um, you know believing Christians would have mm -hmm. trouble with Campbell. But, right. Yeah. Any anyone who adopts a um, an absolute view of the truth as applied to the deity mm -hmm. is going to be irritated by Campbell. Yes, okay. absolutely. Yep. All right. So you got going on, uh, what is it, a fire inside the mind? Yeah, a fire a fire in the mind, I believe it's fire called. Fire in the mind. And, um, and so all of these pull quotes from Campbell himself are, you know, he's he, he actually reminded me a lot of Schliemann. Oh, yeah. So, for, so listeners, um, one of our early episodes on, a, I, I take it to be a similar kind of guy. A fairly successful one, we should say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Some of those early ones were duds. They were duds. But that one's got, Schliemann's got good numbers. Schliemann. Schliemann. Right, cleverly titled. But like Schliemann, uh, it's a, Campbell, he struck me as a guy who kind of believed his own hype. Very much. You know, he saw himself as kind of a mythic figure and, and it's almost kind of, Forced Gumpian in the mm. kind of things that he did. Um, he was born to a, a very wealthy family in New England, and with all the perks that that right. uh, that brought, he traveled to Europe as a young boy. He talks about stories about as a teenager debating with Hindu philosophers. It's like, it's, come on, <laughs> is that believable? No, I, I don't know. Right. I don't. I don't know. But so I, I just I just found. I think lots of Campbell's ideas are really interesting mm -hmm. and are really quite useful in kind of in teaching and talking and thinking about myth for uh, for terms of pattern recognition. Yeah, sure, um, and also kind of in, so interpretive as well. I think it's uh, there's a, there's a lot there. But as a person, 
Hmm. I don't think Joey and I would have seen eye to eye. Yeah, Jojo and you, you're not going to have a cup of coffee. No, I think he would rub me the wrong way. I think that's pretty likely. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. So, uh, as you say, you know, widely traveled, and uh, this really was interesting to mm-hmm. me. You, you put this together based on a previous lecture. This is, you know, some of your excellent work here. Yeah. He wanted to be a combination of Douglas Fairbanks and Leonardo da Vinci. Right. This is something he says um, in these famous interviews that he did with Bill Moyer called, mm. called The Power of Myth back in the late 1980s. This is the same guy that, on the American road, or is that Charles Corral? Yeah, no, but... But they're from the same... Same kind of PBS, PBS um, kind of family, Right. right? Uh, he did a series of interviews with Campbell in the late '80s, and it's, it's one of the ways in which Campbell really came to uh, kind of the forefront of the American uh, uh, consciousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was uh, Moyer was asking him, you know, well, you know, what about your early life? You know, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? And he was talking about his experience in the in the going to the, the early theater, right, the movie theaters in, in 1920s. And he said, I wanted to be Douglas Fairbanks, you know, as a you know fighting swordsman. Uh, combined with Leonardo da Vinci. So Fairbanks is an, an early um, matinee idol. Yeah, silent him, film, right? silent film. Kind of like Errol Flynn. Yeah, exactly like Errol. So yeah. buckling some swashes, swashing his buckles all over the place. Right, strong jawline. Yes, chiseled. Yes, yes exactly. Swinging right? from the chandelier or from a rope suspended from the mast. Yes. Ex- exactly, with it, with the, the sail kind of tearing as you go. Correct. Yes, right. Uh, rescuing the damsel. So right. Campbell wanted to be like Douglas Fairbanks. He did. He wanted to kind of have that, you know, that bravado, chest thumping, masculine superhero type mixed with the intellect and invention of Da Vinci. Right. Yes. So kind of a Lawrence of Arabia and Andy Warhol. Oh, bringing it right back to the soup. <laughs> did you like that? I did like it, man. Man, you're you're throwing lots of curveballs. All right, out. That, okay. that's great. So Da Vinci, uh, polymath, mm-hmm. artist, artist, yeah, it's someone who could do it all. Right. And so Campbell says, you know, this is what I want to be when I grow up. And I th- it was very clear to me in this interview and other things I've read from him is that when he grew up, he indeed saw himself very much in these same terms. Well, right. don't don't you think this is, is a bit of a digression? Mm-hmm. In order to found a uh, establish a cohesive system. Like he has, you know, now for a system to be cohesive is not the same thing as for it to be true, mm-hmm. right? but it has an internal kind of coherence. It all clings together. You look at it from the outside and hmm, that has some plausibility, right? Yes. You have to be almost a kind of egomaniac, yes. don't you? Yes. You have to have this enormous power to project your ideas onto others because they're going to come up with um, sometimes small or minor, sometimes major counter arguments. You have to be able to not let them get to you too yes. much and just dismiss that. Right. Uh, without a doubt. Now, I had that exact same thought. Like, without this tremendous ego, mm-hmm. he never would have been able to project and accomplish what he did. The same thing with Schliemann too, right? Exactly. If he hadn't b- believed his own myth, right. he wouldn't have done what he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Campbell, I think he definitely falls into that category, maybe. Well, well that category, I was trying to think of a, of a descriptor for that category. It's it's archetype. Archetype. I'm just going to keep throwing out words. Um, and... I'll say it was almost like bordering on the megalomaniac, mm. kind of like that. So, but mm. um, I could be wrong. But he could back this up with some uh, actual education. He right? did. Well, I mean, he had he had um, you know coming from the the kind of the wealth and privilege that he did. I mean, it, all these things were at his fingertips. He went to Dartmouth. He studied at Columbia. He studied in Paris. He studied in Germany. He knew Indian mythology. Right. And so he encountered these you know, people from all over the world. He studied linguistics. Like Schliemann, he seems to have had a, a, a great facility with language. Mm. And that helped him in kind of his comparison and, and contrasting of, of myths around the world. And 
Did he did he become a successful academic? One of those people that gets masters and PhD degrees and goes on to a glamorous life? N- well, not exactly. He dropped out of his uh, <laughs> he dropped out of his PhD program. Oh no! And uh, he, he there was another famous quote by him. He says, "There's no greater symbol of ignorance than to have completed a PhD in the in the liberal arts." <laughs> so, so he might be onto something there. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he didn't finish. He but then he goes. He does this weird kind of uh, almost proto hippie thing. Moves out. He he moves into a into a shack in Woodstock, New York, and kind of does a, a Thoreau, where he lives isolated for f- five years. Who knows if this is true? What do you mean? So this is what he says he did. He says he did. This and is supposed to be the the Asketarion, the ascetic lifestyle, where he learns all the elements of self denial. Yes. Was this kind of his catabasis? Go go down into the cabin and come out a new man yes. with with some original idea. Right. I think he he certainly frames it in terms of like a uh, a Buddhist monk. Up in the mountains, you know, kind of achieving his nirvana. Mm-hmm. But he talks about for five years, you know, he de- he denied himself the the luxuries of New York City. Yeah, and he says he he the read bagels, the, right? The bagels, the pizza, right? The, the 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 deli sandwiches, right? Right, all that stuff. And he claims that he was reading nine hours a day. He, you know, who needs Columbia when I can just educate myself, right? Who needs those schmucks? And is that not appealing to you at all? Well, it's I like the, I mean I like that. I like that kind of idea. It was just the way that I can Campbell frames it is like, you know, well, I'm 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 better than everybody else and so You're an anti Campbellite, no, aren't you? I'm actually not. Okay. I'm actually not the, the man as a man, I, I think it just No, not appealing. He, he rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, but the ideas are, are very interesting. Right, 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 right. So then he goes off to California and uh, again these these um the instances of, of Kismet. He meets a young John Steinbeck oh. on, on the way up and makes good friends and uh, with, with the, ori- the original title was uh, "The Soup of Wrath." Actually, <laughs> that what was the original title. That would have been a lot better. Is the soup oh, of, of wrath? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> the soup yeah. was angry that day, my friends. <laughs> Very nice, right? <laughs> oh man! So he meets a young John Steinbeck. Steinbeck, and then he's you know he's introduced to the literary circles yes. of of, um, of California, Southern and Northern, and and he's he's making connections along the way. It just seems like you know, he was a great networker. Yes, he had to have been. Maybe that's the second element in founding a cohesive system. Yeah, you you have to have a certain kind of megalomania, mm-hmm. and then you have to have persons to spread your ideas. Absolutely right. I think that comes with kind of a. Um, a very forceful extroversion, right? Right. right? You're going to um, just assume everybody is going to love you as much as you love yourself. Hmm. So that, that seems very Campbell to me. Hmm. So um, long story short, he ends up getting a, a position uh, at Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, does he try his hand at fiction? Yeah. So he's right. I mean, he's you know very impressed with Steinbeck and he hmm. wants to try that. He publishes a couple of short stories. He, he leaves a novel, I think, half finished hmm. before he realizes that he, he had a greater calling. Mm-hmm. And um, Have you read any of his fiction? Because I haven't. No, I don't think. I mean, there a couple of short stories that made their way into you know magazines. Right. But he was not renowned as a as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. He gets a job. He's offered an academic position at Sarah Lawrence College out east. And that's where he spends uh, the majority of his professional career. So he teaches there for 38 years and retires in 1972. So this is without a PhD, though. I believe so. And this is the same guy who said, you know, there's no greater badge of ignorance than a PhD in, in liberal, liberal arts. arts. Something like that. So yeah. eventually he made peace with the system. He did, right. right. That's a pretty plumb job at Sarah Lawrence. Right. And as I understand, Sarah Lawrence is also kind of, it's uh, it's kind of a, kind of a hippie 
poetry. I'd be careful what you say well, here. Do you know any Sarah Lawrenceites? I, I, I Sarah Laurentians? I knew a couple of guys that went to Sarah Lawrence. I mean, it struck me as kind of like, a, you know, it's a, on the, in the East, it's like the East answers to, to like Evergreen. Okay. Uh, am, I, am I in the ballpark? I don't I, know. I, okay. I, these are the people that, that make the cake mixes, right? Aren't they? Does is Sarah Lawrence? Oh, no, it's cake? Sarah Lee. Sarah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just off for a minute there. So, yeah. so he teaches there he did, yeah. for 38 years. Yes. Yep. Retiring in? In 1972. Yeah. Right. And it's really after that that he becomes, um, maybe was most famous hmm. as this public intellectual. He gets tangled up with uh, George Lucas mm-hmm. and the whole Star Wars mythology. We'll get into that. You don't want to tangle with George Lucas. No, you don't. He marries, uh, he marries a woman, Jean uh, Erdman, who was a former student of his. And they remained married until he dies in 1987. And they lived in New York City and split time between there and Hawaii, where oh, she was from. That's nice. Um, did not have any children. No children. Nope. So, so Campbell couldn't have left, you know, a pair of old, um, what am I thinking of here? A pair of old loafers and, uh, you know, a sword, you know, underneath a rock in Central Park or something for his son to discover later on. Man, I think if he had had a son, he would have done he exactly would have done something. that. Yes. Right. Some kind of token of recognition, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Alathesius. Yes, yeah. to prove paternity. Right. But he didn't do it. He didn't. No, um, his his life was his work, and his his wife was a dancer and an artist, and her life was her work, and hmm. and um, but yeah, uh, an interesting, uh, fascinating, maddening guy. I wonder if there is another biography that would be able to hold your attention, you know, more than halfway through. Of Campbell? Yes, there must be something smaller, something lesser. There probably is. I mean, I just did a search, and, and every, everything that I read said, "No, oh, this is the this is the authorized biography." Fire in the mind. Fire in the mind. Mm-hmm. So I just. Eh, well, I maybe know. we can ask the listeners if are there any uh, students of Campbell out there you can recommend a title that maybe we could read. Yeah. All right, so fast-forwarding a few years, um, it's in 1949 that he writes the work that he um, is still to this day best known for, this book, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it's a, as turgid as the prose is that we were talking about. Um, it's a monumental work. And if you think about what ha- the kind of legwork that would have had to have been done to do a kind of a comparative worldwide, uh, a worldwide study of, of comparative mythology in pre-internet days. It's astounding. That is incredible. Right? What do you think of the title? Um, I think it's a great title. Yeah. It really, it, I mean, it kind of tells you everything you need to know um, in just those few words. Highly descriptive, mm-hmm. but also concise. Yes. So better than De Rerum Natura. Way better. Right. Like uh, about stuff, right? <laughs> right. No, this is, this is, it's a great title. It's a great title and pr- provocative. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in the work, he lays out the fundamentals of the... Of the monomyth. The monomyth, right. okay. And I should say to listeners, if you're interested in pitch, I don't recommend reading the book um, um, because it's, you'll hit your head against the wall. But chapter four of that book is called The Keys. The Keys. The Keys. And this is where he kind of just lays out the basics. Okay. So if you're interested in kind of just kind of the fundamental building blocks of the, of, uh, of the hero's journey from Campbell's own prose... That's where you need to look. Why didn't he put that in the preface? Who knows? Or chapter one. Why did he wait till chapter four? I, I couldn't make it through chapter two, so I just looked ahead until I found something I could read. <laughs> chapter four. Chapter four. Hero with a thousand faces. Mm-hmm. So he's yes, and so uh, but throughout he's making all kinds of of comparisons. I mean, one of the really interesting things he does in that book is he he collects a lot of oral narratives that simply had not been written down before. So he was deeply fascinated with Native American mm-hmm. mythology. So a lot of Native American folklore he collected, um, Indian folklore, mm. um, not just kind of the, what you might expect, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of classical, not a lot of Norse mythology. Okay. Um, he kind of went for the stuff that was, was lesser known. And I thought that was you know, to his credit. And the whole theory is reducible to the idea 
that, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. all mythic narratives are variations on a single story. Yes, right. And so this was kind of, he, he, this is where he's kind of shaking hands with, with Carl Jung. Okay. And so Jung's psychological theories uh, of the collective unconscious, that, you know, that's uh, idea that, you know, if the universe only lifted its veil, we could see this mystical connection between all things. Mm-hmm. So, so like in the movie Avatar, mm-hmm. there's some kind of purple or white light that connects all living things. Yes, exactly. Yes. So dreams and myths, according to Jung, as I understand, are mm-hmm. expression of, quote, like you were saying, collective unconsciousness. Yes, exactly right. So you and I are connected unconsciously, but we're also connected to everything else. Yes, exactly right. And so, we express ourselves collectively. How? Through the telling of myth. Okay. Right. And we're only telling really one story. Right, right. And so what we what we think, you know, Jung talked about how you know, what uh, you know the modern world would call a coincidence is not a coincidence at all, mm-hmm. and um, it's that again if we could kind of see behind the curtain we could see how everything was connected. And so Campbell would say, yes, we think that we're always coming up with these new stories, and you know each culture produces its own body of legends and mythology with it, yes with their own kind of personal touches. But if we could put them all next to each other, we'd see we're all just really telling the same story. Hmm. Every story has the same recipe. Yes, exactly right. Hmm. Yeah. You ever hear the, the story Young told about, um, or was drawn to, of uh, Baum's coat? No, this one. Baum's coat. Uh, yeah, it's a fun story, um, and I take it to be to be truthful. Well, let's hear it. Okay. I mean, I've heard of Baum's suspenders um, and his cummerbund, but his coat. His coat. No, exactly right. Um, Baum made some some good soup. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, you can't try to put I, that I, in I, there. I'm sorry. I'm going to leave that those to you. Right. All right. So the story goes: um, late 1930s, they are filming. They're putting together. The, the famous Wizard of Oz film with Judy Garland. Oh, so we're talking about uh, Frank Baum. Frank Baum. Got it. Right. And so the story goes is that they're getting you know, the production together and they're, uh, they need costuming for a particular scene. And this scene calls for some kind of old, ragged clothing. So the director or whatever uh, sends the costume designer to go down to the thrift shop, just buy a bunch of stuff. We'll see what works for the scene. So she goes down there. Buys all these things, comes back, and they're they're trying the the coats and the jackets on the actors. And this actor puts on a sport coat that seems to be working for fairly well, and they happen to look inside the um, the lining, and the monogram on the jacket is L. Frank Baum. Oh no way! Yes. So that can't be a coincidence. This is the expression of collective unconsciousness. Right. So Young says, you know, every every when this story was told, what an amazing coincidence. And Young says, no. This is the universe kind of giving us a little peek into that kind of synchronicity. But if, if we're connected to all of the universe, aren't we giving ourselves a little peek? What do you mean? Well, I'm connected, right, to this collective unconsciousness. Yes. I'm a little node on the whole, mm-hmm. you know, the whole system, the whole network. So yeah. the universe isn't giving me a peek. I'm giving myself a peek. I guess so. But I think what Jung and Campbell would say is that the vast majority of people are completely unaware that they're connected to this this thing at all. So we need some kind of enlightenment. Exactly. We right. need a Jung or a Campbell to come along and explain. Yeah. You may think this is a coincidence, an expression of some really interesting new idea, but no. But no. And I think um, Campbell, even more than Jung, when he wrote this book, he wasn't saying, look at this interesting thing I've noticed. Look at this interesting way of interpreting myth mythology. For Campbell, was says, no, this is this is the guide for your life. Mm. This is a this is a quasi religion. So mm-hmm. it's much more than just kind of an, an interesting literary theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, for him, it was his religion. I have another young quote here. Please, he says that uh, dreams and myths contain archetypes that are quote dramatic abbreviations 
dramatic abbreviations of patterns in storytelling. Yes. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yep. And, uh, you know, came back to this, this biography. And so Campbell talks about when he's a young kid, he literally becomes kind of the, you know, one of Jung's famous archetypes is the innocent, the child, the, mm. kind of the, the um, Goldilocks character. Well, more kind of the, uh, precocious child. Okay. And, uh, you let, who links up with kind of a wise mentor. And that's exactly what happens to Campbell. His parents leave him alone in this, um, this, with this cabin in the woods that they bought in Pennsylvania. And there's like an older guy on site that, on, in the grounds that he meets and kind of tells him all these legends and leads him through the woods. It's, it's, mm. it's, uh, it's Frodo and Gandalf. Isn't that how Goodwill Hunting was? The, the guy down in the basement yeah. who, was, who was solving the math equations and so forth. And Right. It's, a, it's Matt Damon who, who links up with Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah, exactly. And so Campbell would just say, probably sneeringly, see, yeah. told you. Yeah. <laughs> Collective unconsciousness <laughs> forcing itself out all over the place. That's right. Won an Oscar, told you. Right? Yeah. I don't like this guy. I know, exactly. I don't like this guy, especially the way that you are, uh, you I, know, presenting I him. I don't maybe be a little bit too hard it on, could on be. Joseph. Yeah. So there are stages, right? There's right. stages in the hero's monomyth. Right. Uh, in which he's telling the one single story. Yes. So what's the first stage? Well, I should say, if you if you go on Google and if you type in Hero's Journey and you click the Images tab, you'll get like a thousand uh, different uh, examples. It's usually, you know, it's a circle, it's a cycle. And so the, the Hero stage takes you from stage one literally all the way back to, to stage one. Or it's sometimes it's... it's, um, it sounds it's like, so I start at stage one and I go back to stage you, one? Yeah, you go back. It's, 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 it's a little dull. Well, it's, it's like uh, in The Hobbit, when yes. Bilbo writes his own book, he doesn't yes. call his story the Hobbit; he calls it there and back again. Oh, that's right? good. So it's it's the it's the hero's cycle. Yeah. So I was traveling through O'Hare Airport this weekend. Yeah. And they kept changing the gate. Oh my gosh. Um, was it O'Hare? It was some airport. They kept changing the gate, saying you know, your flight will leave out of A11. And then they announced, no, it's A1. No, it's A11. And the people were going back and forth. Oh man. Yes. Talk about a catabasis. It wasn't good. And airports. <laughs> Liminal places. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Points of transit, especially airports, are very dark liminal places. Yes. All right. So let's talk about these stages. Okay. And so stage one, as Campbell outlines it, is uh, he calls it the the hero in the, in the ordinary world. All right. Right. And the, I, we should say the, the the vast majority of the stories that Campbell talks about and that he that um, he he researched our masculine hero stories. Okay. We, we, we should do an episode about the kind of the feminine heroine journey. It could be Penthesilea, the queen of the Amazons. Yeah. Or, um, or you'd be like Penelope. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little red riding hood. Yeah. They have kind of their own unique path. Wonder yeah. woman. Wonder woman. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's another episode. So, okay. so listener, the, the, um, the vast majority of what we're talking about here, we are kind of masculine hero stories. Mm-hmm. So, um, the hero in his ordinary world, usually the hero starts out in some, uh, kind of workaday, mundane existence. Uh, if you think about like Luke Skywalker, he's mm-hmm. a moisture farmer, right? Uh, uh, Frodo and Bilbo live in in Hobbiton, which is kind of a, just a safe, snug, comfy area. Yeah, right? in the Shire. Right. It's 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 warm. It's inviting, but nothing really happens. And Peter Parker, he's a reporter for like his school newspaper, Daily Planet. No, I don't know what it is, but well, he sells pictures of Spider Man, right? Right. But, okay. But he's just he's a he's a schmuck at his high school. Mm-hmm. Or Harry Potter is living with the the, that, the horrible Dursleys. Right? The Muggles. The Muggles, right? And so um, that's the the it provides this kind of bland palette where the adventure, by contrast, becomes that much more exciting. So if you're going to tell a story about a fish out of his customary element, you first have to throw some water into the scene, right? Yes, you have to create a contrast by showing him in this mundane, ordinary world. Okay. Right. 
So, um, and that's where kind of something dramatic happens uh, to push the fledgling out of the nest. I got it. Right. So you were just a young kid from Hudsonville or somewhere like that. Where are you from? Jenison? Jenison, yeah. You're just out there in Jenison, just minding your own business, learning to play the guitar, mm -hmm. learning to play the piano, involved in some sports? Yeah, a little bit. Not, little su bit. not successfully. <laughs> Sporting it up a little bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you came to Calvin College and boom, now you're pushed out of your element and suddenly the classics, right? Exactly. And the organ cues and there's a new vista that opens up. That's right. And the, I think if Campbell, he would say, he would say Dave, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You right. live, you, everyone lives a mythic existence. We just don't realize it. Mm. Right. So there you go. Okay. So something has to happen to, to push the hero out of the ordinary world. And that will be the call to adventure. Right. So this is the... Which... This is like it's two o'clock on the on the clock, right? So if we're going down, we're going around the circle of the clock. So now you lost me altogether. I was about to say we're going to break, but now you got to tell me about the clock. What? Well, what? This, this is the way often the heroes oh. Campbell's cycle is, is described as, as a clock. So each there are twelve stages. So we start at midnight. We start well. We each kind of the, and then ordinary world is is one o'clock. Okay. Two o'clock, and then you wind up at got it. At so two o'clock, mm -hmm. call to adventure, call which we're going to talk about after the break. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Hackett Publishing. For more than 40 years, Hackett has been providing to you and me, loyal readers, the finest translations and other sorts of study guides to aid you in your pursuit of the classics and the liberal arts generally. Jeff, what do you like about Hackett? You know, just today I was in my office and I pulled a text off my shelf. Uh, it was called the Anthology of Classical Mythology. The Anthology of Mythology. Oh man, it's already it's already got a it's like a rap hot beat behind it. That's right? right. And I had no idea. I didn't realize this was published by Hackett. But it's this wonderful text that has translations of. Um, it's nearly comprehensive of classical mythology of primary sources. Mm. And I use it all the time when I teach mythology. It's just a great, wonderful text. It's got that beautiful kind of black and orange that you'd find on a on a uh, a vase painting yes and it's just it's such a, a useful engaging text my students love it and it's from Hackett that's great that's yeah. great that's just one of, of dozens right so this past week as you know I was doing some teaching on uh, the great works of the Middle Ages uh -huh. teaching some Boethius I was using the Hackett translation of the consolation of philosophy a very well organized text alternating with uh, prose and meter a very nice introduction and once again a brilliant cover on the cover is a shot of a prison, right? In poorly lit shadows, and then you can see the, the gates, the bars of the prison cell, because, of course, Boethius wrote the Consolation of Philosophy while he was uh, imprisoned, Perfect. right? Perfect, so yeah. 523, 524 AD. Another excellent illustration of the artistry that Hackett puts into all of its work. So, Ad Nauseam listeners, if you want to take advantage of uh, Hackett's tremendous catalog, um, all you have to do is go to hackettpublishing.com. Yep, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, -T, yep. if I may add. Find the text you want, put them in a little in a little grocery bin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you will get an amazing... 20% off. Plus... Plus free shipping. You can't beat it. You, all you have to do is type in AN2021. That's right. That code's going to change pretty soon, right? Because uh, 2021 is you know winding to a halt it pretty soon. But there's still time. 20% and free shipping. An amazing bargain. Check it out. This week's episode also brought to you by the Moss Method. Dave, will you tell us about the Moss Method? Absolutely. If you want to learn how to read Greek, if you need help to go from neophyte to erudite... 
I'm the guy that has the program that will give you confidence and ability in the Greek language. Tell us how this works. Well, I've taken the text of Charles Melville Moss. It's a public domain text from the late 19th century. I've divided it up into four modules. I provide you careful line-by-line, word-by-word instruction, all the grammatical things you're going to need, all of the quizzes, the assignments, the elements that are going to help you practice your knowledge. But it is not tedious. It's not. How could this not be tedious? It is not dull, Winkle. It is not boring. All right. Because it is based on some incredibly interesting stories. Oh, wonderful. So we have a troublesome boy. That's the first one. There's a guy named Steve. He's kind of Kufanus. He's a bit of a knucklehead. There's Steve's in this? Yeah, Stefanos. Steve's in there. Lazy Steve? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> and then we go on to the second reading. Uh, a troublesome boy. He has a nurse. Steve has a nurse, a, guy that, a, a gal that takes care of him. Philip hits two thieves with one decision. Boom. Just like that. Mm. Some great stories. I like this one. Uh, a pedant learns about a ladder. I think that's the fifth story in the reading. A pedant wants to know how many steps are in a ladder, and the guy tells him, well, there's ten, and he says, ah, but is it the same number whether you're going up or going down? (laughs) And that's just the stuff that gets us started. Later on, you are reading from Herodotus, adapted into Attic. You're reading from Plato, from Lucian's Dialogues. This is an incredible book, and I've divided it up, presented it in a way that is self-paced, expert and accessible. So you can learn Greek. That sounds great. So how do students go about uh, getting into this? Well, they should go check out some of the introductory videos I've offered for free at the website, mossmethod.com. You can check out the office hours that I'm offering. You Mm. can see how to meet with me each week and help in your Greek journey, right? You can be the monomyth of your own story. Yes. And uh, you can sign up for the course. It's $2.99 per module. It comes with a, a number of incredible things. But there's really no excuse to not start learning today, taking your Greek from... Neophyte to erudite. This episode is also brought to you by the good folks at Racial Coffee in Portland, Oregon, who have solved all of your brew-based and aesthetic problems. All of them? All of them, Jeff. There are none left to be solved. That's true. I asked that question, but I already know the answer. Yes, it's true. All of them. Yes, you've got the Ratio 6. Love it. You've got it in stainless steel, I, do. I think. I've got the Ratio 8. Mine is in oyster with walnut accents. Nice. But they're both based on the same pour-over, automatic pour-over technology. Yeah. It's got the bloom stage where the hot water comes down through the Fibonacci head and sits in the cone, off-gassing all the harsh brackish tang. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? And then, uh, I mean, the water comes down through your your favorite grounds and into the industrial carafe. Right. I got to tell a story about my carafe. Let's hear that. Carafe us. The other day, I I had the coffee in the morning and uh, it it brewed up the perfect cup. And then later in in the afternoon, I came, this is about maybe... Four o'clock in the afternoon, I came by to you know to empty out the right. carafe, and I, I I poured it out, and I spilled some on my hand as it was Ooh. coming out, and it was still warm. It was still warm. So it was still warm. You still still drinkable. Wow. Uh, this is many out, many hours this later. Is hours later, but not bitter. No, not bitter. No scorch pad no, underneath. It wasn't hot because it was being heated from below. It was just right. the carafe in of itself. It's unbelievable. Incredible. Yep. Well, we have some good news here. At long last, Mark tells us. The Ratio 6 has earned a certification by the Rigorous Specialty Coffee Association. Hmm. This isn't just a gold star. The SCA puts coffee makers in consideration through a gauntlet of tests, insisting on some of the highest standards in the game. The golden cup yield, right? This is a coffee-to-water ratio of 55 grams per liter. It must be produced within a 10% margin of error and with water brewed between 195 and 205 degrees Fahrenheit. Naturally, the 6th passed all of these tests with 
a plum. Wow, it's the uh, Olympics of coffee making. Yeah, it got the gold star. That's amazing. Yeah, so do you want a gold star coffee maker or do you want to limp along with one of those plastic squirty machines you can pick up for 20 bucks and immediately regret it? To ask the question is to answer it. That's right. So yes. what should listeners do if they want to support ad nauseum and also score themselves a great coffee experience? Well, they should go to ratiocoffee.com. Can you spell that? Uh, R-A-T-I-O coffee. All right. Dot com. And you uh, click on, they can buy the ratio six with this offer. They can yes. get the eight now too, the eight, remember? Eight is now, that's right. So either of them. Yes, 15% off. Yep. So put one of those in your in your bucket. Okay. <laughs> grocery basket. The grocery basket. Uh, type in A-N-C-O. Exactly. And you'll get, uh, uh, how much off is it? 15%. 15% off your ratio six or eight. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into things Campbell, the Campbelliana. Yes. We're at stage two, the call to adventure. Right. And here the hero is presented with a problem, a challenge, or an adventure. Right. Maybe the land is dying. It's beset with a plague. Uh, maybe like with King Arthur, they have to go off and search for the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. Something to maybe save that particular land. Okay. Um, I've often found um, that in a masculine hero story, it often is maybe not so much about saving the land itself, but solving some kind of personal problem. Mm. Masculine heroes often have um, problems of identity. Yeah. Who is my daddy? Who is my daddy is a, is mm -hmm. a huge one, right? So lots of, of these heroes have the father problem. Mm -hmm. If you think about, well, Harry Potter has, doesn't know who his parents were. Now, it's Voldemort, isn't it? Vol no, Voldemort is not his parents. Voldemort oh. killed his parents. Oh. Yeah. Um, of course, I'm Luke partly trying to outrage the listeners. <laughs> can't believe I don't know anything about Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. You're just making enemies. I can feel it. Uh, Luke Skywalker, of course, uh, yes. in his, uh, his has deep father issues. Yes. Um, in the second film, which is actually the fifth film, we learn later, yeah. he's clinging to that antenna, right? Yes. And refusing to believe that Vader is... Right. Did I spoil it for anybody? You, you just did. <laughs> and in that moment, he chooses to seriously overact. Right. What's that guy? Is it George Hamill? Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill. Yes. Sorry, Mark Hamill. Right. He chooses to override. We've all done that. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Right. The primordial scream. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody grieves in their own in their own okay. way. Okay. Right. If you in a classical example, of course, Oedipus has mm -hmm. a serious father problem. He's the archetype. Yes. Uh, masculine stories are often centered around one's identity mm -hmm. and, and your relationship to the father. Okay. So in feminine stories, it's often about what's my role in society. Interesting. Yeah, it's a social thing rather than an individual thing. But we're not dealing with the feminine stories tonight because no, we don't have time. We don't have time. All right. right. So the third stage then, we're at three o'clock now, mm -hmm. refusal of the call. Right. So I, the, I can't take that call. No. Right. Can't do it like that. Put him on hold. Put him on hold. Lydia, take a message. Something right. like that. Right. So this could be the recusatio. Yes. In literary terms. Yeah. Is, that, is it all right? Yeah, sure. Ovid says at the beginning of the Amores, uh, I can't write no epic poetry, can't do it. I'll write the Amores instead. Yes. Right. It's, I, think, I think Campbell would say, yep, there it is again. Hmm. Right. Now this Campbell guy. I know. It's, it's annoying, isn't it? So, yeah, so, so the hero balks, uh, does not want to leave, you know. Um, At the very threshold of adventure. Right. Makes an excuse. Um, and there's something has to happen to kind of, you know, literally sh make, give the hero no option but to go. If you think about, like, Telemachus, Athena as mentor has to basically say, get on this ship and take this little journey. Right. Do it. Do it. Pushes him out of the mm -hmm. nest. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, the, the fear is what? Is the unknown. Okay. Right? And so part of being in that safe, ordinary world is you've never really explored outside of it. You know, Telemachus, I get the feeling, has never left Ithaca before, mm -hmm. right? Bilbo has never left Hobbiton. Uh, Harry Potter's never left 
Privet Drive or whatever that house is. Is that where he lives? Five Five Privet Drive. Under the stairs. Yes, right. And so everything outside of that that safe area is going to be weird and wild. Right. right? So that's your Johnny nah, Carson. Yeah, I'll leave that to you. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but when you left Jenison, yeah. right, to come to the big metropolis of Grand Rapids, right, with my, my I had stars in my eyes. That was the <laughs> unknown for you, wasn't it? In some ways, yes. It's I, exciting. I think for me, it was more when I moved to Chicago, where right. things really became more kind of Campbellian. Yeah, but, but I, yeah. I took a long road trip after I was finished with undergrad. A long, long solo road trip. Didn't you go down to Texas? I did, yeah. actually, to Mexico. Yep. Yeah, It yeah, involved yeah. some uh, momentary nausea Yes, in the great state of Missouri. <laughs> uh, it involved, you know, scrapes with the cops. And um, in those days, we didn't have no... Um, MP3 players. Oh yeah, you had. It was really tough to get music. Did you, had you have your box of cassettes with you? I did with my traveling boombox <laughs> on the seat next to you. Correct. <laughs> Why is this so funny no, to you, Wink? That's awesome. I couldn't plug it. E- I couldn't even plug it into the cigarette lighter. I didn't even have one of those things. Oh my gosh! You had just batteries, had like nine volt batteries. Correct. <laughs> a big box of batteries, but it got me through. Yeah. We didn't have GPS. I didn't know where I was going. It was yeah. basically head south and you'll hit Mexico. Did you, I mean, did you encounter the refusal of the call at this time? Like, do you get so far as that? I cannot go through the Taco no, Bell drive through one again. <laughs> I'm a stubborn one. <laughs> yeah. So, no. I just kept going. Kept but going. there's that real sense of adventure. Sure. Yep. Stepping off. Correct. Yeah. So, what's stage four? Stage four is the meeting with the mentor. Grasshopper. Yes. Right. So, this is where the young, Fresh-faced hero meets with some kind of wizened figure. It's often a wizard uh, figure, somebody who has some kind of mysterious magical power. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, for lots of audiences, this is the one that's most easily recognized. Right. So, so in Lord of the Rings, it's, it's what's that guy's name? Sendoff? <laughs> Gandalf? Oh, Gandalf. Man, you are just bent on irritating people tonight, aren't you? <laughs> the, the white, no, he's the... Gandalf the Grey. But he becomes Gandalf the White. Correct. So he has his own little uh, adventure, doesn't he? He does. His own catapult. After the adventure. Balrog. That's right. Exactly. Oh, you know your stuff. I know some yeah. Tolkien. So, I mean, yeah, fill in the gaps. This is uh, Dumbledore. This is Yoda. This is Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. This is, um, have you read, read Hunger Games? No, but can we throw in some actual literature here? Please, okay. This is just all pop culture. All right. uh, Kiran. Okay. okay. The, the, the centaur. centaur. Yes, he's your, he's your ancient Greek Yoda. He's right? Phoenix. Phoenix. To Achilles, right? Yes, exactly right. Mentoring him, teaching him to drink red wine and eat red meat, because that's what an infant hero eats and drinks. Mm -hmm. Teaching him how to be a doer of deeds and a speaker of words. Yes. Okay. uh, And he does this for Jason as well. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of that that, uh, repeating figure. I'm trying to, what other, I mean, Athena kind of plays this for role. Telemachus. For, for Telemachus. And, and for Odysseus. For many other heroes, she's she's standing nearby. Mm-hmm. Right. For Theseus, for Perseus. Right. You name it. You name it. Um, so you don't have to think too far. Uh, your favorite ancient myth, your favorite modern myth usually if, has this kind of figure. Right. If you have seen one of the Avengers movies, a kid just asked me today, Cuomodo Dicatur Latine Avenger. Mm. Ultor. Ultor, yes. Yes. Uh, in the movie, what is it? Uh, Infinity Wars, I think it is. Tony Stark is that character for Peter Parker. Exactly. He's the father figure, the mentor, takes him to the next level. Right. So if the hero has father issues, the father's absent, the mentor figure comes in to, to take that place. Mm-hmm. Right. And then stage five? Stage five, actually crossing the threshold. Okay. And so... Carrying um, a bride or no? Um, well, the, the, the threshold um, is a very liminal place, right? <laughs> the threshold is neither in nor out, it's both. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's an that's an inside joke, isn't it? What? A running gag, you and your liminality. You're the one who brought up liminality. I just want to point that out tonight, right? You complain about it, but you threw it on the table. All right. So I'm picking it up. So yeah, the threshold is, it's the point of, of no return, right? You you cross it and a uh, threshold cross cannot be uncrossed. Okay. And, and you can't go back across the threshold. If it's one same. of those turnstiles that... Once you start in, it yeah. doesn't go the other way. Exactly. And grab oh, it. And I, don't, I don't want the station. Correct. Right. You're, you're screwed. But yeah. but but other um, other thresholds you can go back, can't you? Why can't you go back? Well, I th- in in kind of you know mythical terms, yeah. Literally, if you step across the threshold, you can jump back. But you can't go back because you've changed. You've changed exactly. Right. You'll never be the same person. Right. It's that you know, that. I do, you can ne- you can never go home again. Heraclitus, you can never step across the same threshold twice. Exactly, exactly right. So Heraclitus, it was a river. Yes, yes. So, um, in in this in this case, the crossing of the threshold in the story, yeah, it is a little a literal threshold. It's the leaving of the ordinary world for the special world, mm-hmm. uh, from which the hero cannot return the same person. Now Dorothy, right? She's a female heroine, mm-hmm. and she embarks on the yellow brick road. Mm-hmm. Uh, the road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Yes. Some Tolkien. There you go. But why um, why can she fill the role as a heroine? Well, I think Dorothy is one of those figures that kind of breaks the mold. Mm-hmm. Um, her journey in many ways is very masculine. She Along the way, you know, she I mean, who would be her mentor? She kills the witch. Well, the, the scarecrow is kind of serving as a mentor, but you notice she is immediately joined by three male figures. Right. The scarecrow, the lion, and the tin man. Yeah, although they're kind of deficient in a lot of ways. Right. They're kind of, oh, kind of comic relief to some Correct. degree, right? Yeah, and she's really providing a lot of the will for that journey. Yeah. So maybe it's Glenda the Good Witch who maybe who mm. kind of plays the Gandalf role in, mm-hmm. in that. But you're right. Her journey in many ways is a very masculine one. I think it's one of the things that makes that story so interesting. Yeah, as well as Judy Garland's amazing voice. Indeed. Indeed. Yep. So we're on to uh, stage six. Stage six, right. Um, tests, enemies, and allies is what Campbell calls this. Three points. Tests, enemies, and allies. So there's an the idea that the hero um, has to prove his mettle. And so there are kind of some challenges along the way. Not the not the main challenge. Okay. But there'll be little things to kind of see. Well, see what you're made of. This is part of the hero montage, right? It, exactly. Yeah. Where you know Rocky's got to run up the steps, drink some eggs, run back down the steps, punch some meat hanging from a hook. Correct. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is your your action montage. Yes. Uh, Superman learns how to focus his laser vision and so on and so forth. Exactly. Um, Peter Parker learns how to shoot the webs out of his wrists. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's and then along the way you also you also meet okay who's with me and who's against sidekicks me. sidekicks right so Batman gets Robin um what are the sidekicks? that's about all I can think of <laughs> that's at the most this famous one point yeah I mean I guess Superman and Jimmy Olsen or yeah all the Super Friends get Aquaman <laughs> as their sidekick exactly yeah and of course for Luke Skywalker it's again in that fifth movie The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Where he goes down into the cave and confronts the ghost of his father, and then boom, he's off to what Dagobah, I think it is. That take, that actually scene takes place on Dagobah. It's kind of a catabasis oh, right. within the catabasis. Right? Oh, it's a catabasis, yeah. like a Russian nesting catabasis. Yeah, it's and, actually my favorite scene in all the Star Wars movies. Oh, interesting. So it's very Jungian because okay. remember, remember he so he fights the specter of Vader in the cave. Correct. It's, it's not actually Vader. Mm-hmm. Chops off his head. The mask explodes and he sees his own face. His own image. Right. And this is before it's revealed that Vader is his father. But this, it's, this is what he could be. Is right. And it's, that's really hmm. deeply, darkly... Campbellian? Campbellian, Jungian. Mm-hmm. Right? So then uh, he, he in that place, Dagobah, he finds out that Yoda is really his 
mentor. He gets the tests, the allies, the enemies, and we're on to stage number seven. seven. Yes, the approach to the inmost cave. Mm. So this is where this is on the kind of the next threshold um, of where the main monster is going to be faced, or mm-hmm. the main challenge. This is the entrance into the lowest part of the, okay. of the of the hero's uh, uh, journey. So I haven't made a soup reference in a long time. So this would be like trying to put croutons in your soup. That's a little bit uh, more difficult than that. Wait, Was it, it for, does that seem forced? <laughs> you like croutons in your soup? I, I, they kind no, of I like, float, they become soggy. I, and like, the, I like croutons on my salad. I mean, maybe some oyster crackers in my soup. Oh, croutons are good in soup. I would imagine they would be. I've never tried mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Maybe when we have the ad nauseum trip to Greece. Yes. Uh, in addition to the hayride, we can meet for some uh, pre-trip soup tasting. I mean, that'd be great. Okay. The big bag of croutons for everyone. That's right. Yeah. Approach to the inmost cave. Right. So this is where, this is Theseus entering down into the labyrinth, right? There to meet the, the minotaur. Um, this is this is Luke flying down into the narrow passage of the Death Star. Mm-hmm. The trench. The trench, right. And th- this is where, uh, again, the hero often meets a, meets a moment of self-doubt. Can I do this? Um, um, is is it is it really just up to me to do this? Often they've gone with friends, but now the friends are have been lost. They've been abandoned. They've been abandoned. Mm-hmm. Either uh, they're waylaid or they've been killed, and now it's just the hero going forward. So the Knights of the Round Table, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Arthurian stories, what's the um, the Chapel Perilous? The Chapel Perilous. Right. Okay. Uh, I think it's Galahad who goes to to uh, alone to seek the Grail. Right now, was yeah. Galahad the one that had the most geometrical knowledge of all the knights? <laughs> Oh, sorry. That was circumference. Oh my gosh! Yeah, circumference. Yes, I got it. All right, yeah, I got it's it. It's a round it. table. All Come right. on. <laughs> All right. Next, next stage. Number eight. Number eight. Is, this is the supreme ordeal. Yep. Right. Which we call in Greek. This is the katabasis. Mm-hmm. This is the ultimate descent. The katabino, the going down. So the Nequia book eleven. Those of you who are following the catalog, you can go back and listen to. A pain in the Nequia, yes. right? And Episodes, more, pa- more pain in the Nequia. <laughs> Episodes one and two on the descent of Odysseus into the underworld. Right. The classic story. Yep. It's the ultimate journey. And this is where the hero faces something that usually represents death. And to get past this, the hero has to be, sometimes literally dies and is resurrected, but um, defeats death and gets off the, uh, gets uh, to the other side. So, mm-hmm. Like Voldemort, of course, has in his name the mort. Mm-hmm. Um, strong, strong death. Strong like death that. or something Voldemort. like that. Right, right. Yeah, he who shall always be named, I think, is what they say about him. So what happens is that the audience has been led to identify with the hero. Yeah, and so you know, Campbell would say the threshold moments in your own life—you know, getting married, graduating, um, birth of a child, birth of a child, getting your first job—these are all catabases. Mm-hmm. Um, Taking your dog on its first walk—is that a big one? I don't know. Okay, <laughs> making your first bowl of soup. Right. From the, from the smallest to the biggest, you do these things and you are, you've grown, you've mm-hmm. changed. And the other stage, your, your identity is, is something new. Mm-hmm. Episode one of the podcast. Classics, classics as a way of life. Classics as a way of life. Right. The point of no return. Right. This is the ultimate journey. This is the ultimate point uh, in the journey uh, where uh, the, the biggest change takes place. Okay. And right. so this makes myths a safe way to face death? Yeah. I, I mean, this, is, this goes beyond kind of Campbell's ideas, but... Um, uh, the idea that we recognize in these stories um, something of ourselves. You know, our stories are not mythic in that they're they're linear or circular and um, you know nicely neatly take us through the stages. Our our lives are messy, but we recognize in these stories. Campbell would I think would say uh, kind of a simplifying of this mess. Okay, um, and it helps us better understand our own journey, seeing in this very linear or circular kind of way. Okay, yeah, and sometimes there's a second element in stage nine, right? And that is the reconciliation with the woman. 
Yes. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Are you, are you jumping ahead on me? I don't mean to. Okay. Let's jump back across the threshold. Oh, sure. Well, uh, um, yeah. Stage nine is seizing the sword. Yes. Seizing the reward. Seizing the re- yeah, seizing the sword or, or the reward. Uh, some, okay. Sometimes there's some kind of treasure gained. Right. Perseus um, gets Andromeda. Yes. Or he's promised Andromeda, but he still has to deal with Uncle Cepheus. Right. And, uh, Uncle Phineas, excuse me, and all of those suitors. Exactly. Theseus kills the Minotaur and he gets Ariadne. Mm-hmm. Right. Whom he doesn't really want. No, and and abandons soon, yes. soon thereafter. But it's still a kind of you know princess rescuing motif. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, the part of the reward is often the hero gets the girl, mm-hmm. and but it was, as as you know, the um, so many of the Greek hero stories don't end happily. Right? No, they don't. No, they end on a very dark note, and so I think that in in the kind of the post Disney hero stories, yeah, it ends with a marriage or, or a happily ever after. This idea that you know one of the jobs mythically or uh, of women is to they civilize men, right. right? And so they they draw them into kind of their social domesticated world, and that's where they can they can you know, have children and live a, a quiet productive life. But that's not a part of the Greek myths. Not not usually. No, no, it's the exception. Uh, not the even, rule. Even the good story where perhaps uh, Medea is uh, with King Aegeus, mm-hmm. right? After she's rescued uh, from Corinth with her problems with Jason. Not a happy family. Not a happy Highly dysfunctional. No, everywhere Medea goes, it, uh, right. it ends badly. Yes. Slaughter and carnage. Number yep. 10. Number 10, the road back. Okay. So now we're, we're, we're coming up the other side of the clock and we're, we're, going, back, uh, we're going back home. And so it, the hero's not out of the woods yet. The, the, the treasure uh, that's been taken is often in danger. There's still kind of chances that, that might be stolen away. And there's more reconciliation that has to take place. Um, the peace has to be made with the father. Mm-hmm. Um, or they kind of accept who one is with relationship to one's father. Mm-hmm. That's all part of the, the, the return back. And, yep. and this is where the great chase scenes are also, right? Sure, right. You don't just walk out of the out of the cave um, whistling. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's monsters, there's soldiers that are they're coming after you. Right? One does not just walk out of Mordor. One does, yes. One does simply not walk in or out Something of Mordor. Something like that. Right. So if you think about in the Odyssey, in Homer's Odyssey, they kill the suitors, but all the townspeople are up in arms. Right. There's a price to be paid. It's a blood feud you got to settle. Exactly right. So there, that would be part of the, you know, quote, quote, unquote, the road back mm-hmm. here. And then uh, stage 11, 11 o'clock. Uh, resurrection. Okay. And so now the hero is returned back home, but forever changed by his uh, experience. Um, you can never actually go back. No. Right? Right. Exactly. You're going back across the threshold, but he's a changed man. Right. Sometimes there's one last challenge to, to face there, like with uh, like Perseus returns and has to deal with um, who, the, the guy who had kidnapped yes. his mother. Yes. Uh, Polydectes. Polydectes. I believe is yes. the one who was taking Danaea. Yes. Right. So he has got kind of one more monster to, to kill to mm-hmm. kind of settle things at home and um and that's kind of the last kind of facing of death and mm-hmm. and now the hero stands alone at being fully resurrected yeah the perseus story has a happy ending actually it does He's he the, becomes the father of perseus yeah uh, the founder of the persian dynasty and, and many other heroes yeah he's the boy scout mm-hmm. right? but um if you, you know, heracles jason oedipus trouble trouble so number 12 the last stage yes the return with the elixir mm-hmm. campbell calls it and um, this is where the hero kind of shares the bounty of his experience, or sometimes it's a physical gift, um, brings for the benefit of his people. Um, this is often where in ancient stories, yeah, the rug gets pulled out. I'm reminded of Gilgamesh, who returns back home with a plant of um, eternal life. And he doesn't eat it himself because he wants to share it with his people. So generous. And, but then a, uh, a snake eats it ah. before he can, he, can, uh, he can claim that gift. Right. Hmm. So they return with the elixir with the, at least the intent to share it with the people, 
Sometimes it's a gift and the, and the, you know, the populace celebrates with the hero, or sometimes it's another thing that gets lost for good. So, Jeff, we've been through the 12 stages. Mm-hmm. We've covered all of the different elements of the monomyth, the single narrative journey, and we've tried to weave into it a number of different examples from pop culture, from literature, from classical literature. What about the connection between Campbell and George Lucas? Right. So this is one of the things that really brought uh, Campbell into the, into the, the public eye. And there's a great story, which it might be apocryphal, but there's probably a lot of truth to it as well. well I think it's apocryphal. It, it, oh, it's, 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 it's certainly apocryphal? <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to say the word apocryphal. <laughs> right. Because it's a misuse of the Greek. But. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Well, the story goes like this. So George Lucas, he's a, a young man. He's in USC film school. He's making his student films. He's working on various things. And um, a friend of his comes to him with this book, Here with a Thousand Faces, and says, George... I know you're interested in this you know, myth stuff. You want to create your own kind of myths. You might like what this guy has to say. So Campbell reads the book. Right, Lucas reads the book. Sorry, Lucas reads the book. And he's drawn to that chapter of the, of the hero stages. And what really struck him was, was he had already written an early draft of what would become the first Star Wars film, Star mm-hmm. Wars 4. And he, he says, oh, my goodness, I just wrote that story without any idea of this order. Hmm. And he was so struck by that, and he was so inspired by that, he went back to the script, and he retooled it so it, it, it adhered even more specifically to Campbell's outline. Fascinating. And, um, when, and then Star Wars you know, explodes on the screen. And whatever you think of the Star Wars mythology, it's hard to kind of overstate what an atom bomb that was in, in pop culture. I mean, right. to this day... Uh, yes. it, it's it, it was it was huge. I have I, family members totally devoted to the story. Yes, and I think really, if I may, yeah, I think it's just that the opening scene you have that giant Dorito chip that <laughs> comes in overhead. Yeah, the special effects are amazing, at yeah. least by the standards of the time. Yes, oh. that's what sold me. It, it, yeah, it was it was a spectacle. Nobody had seen anything like it. A space opera, they say. Yeah, and once you know it became really popular, it. it you know, Lucas started to drop Campbell's name, and kind of the rest is history. But I think Campbell did, uh, Lucas did a kind of a brilliant thing. You know, the famous tagline of, of Star Wars, as you see before every film, is a long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Mm-hmm. And you think about what Lucas is up to, it's everything about Star Wars visually says this is futuristic. You know, Correct. You know, light speed, interplanetary travel. But he's, he's not saying thousands of years from now, it goes far, far away. He said long, long ago. He's basically saying, I'm telling you an ancient story. But I'm telling you in a way that you've never seen it before. Yeah, that is brilliant. Yeah. It, if, I, if only the remaining scripts had been as good. <laughs> exactly. Right? Right, what right. was the one with Jar Jar, the phantom but, plot? Well, let's not, yeah, so let's not talk about Jar Jar. Okay. But, and, but I thought that was, you know, Lucas found a way to kind of, again, basically like Campbell said, tell the same story, but tell it in a way that was going to you know, blow people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. we got a we got a closing quote. We do, which is going to take us into a brief discussion of how uh, these theories of Campbell might impact Christian theists. Right. So shall I read this? Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's hear this. Yeah. So this comes from a 2000 documentary called Joseph Campbell: A Hero's Journey. Not a very inventive title for that. No. Right. In which the interviewer asks, you know, well, you know, what's your notion of God? Mm-hmm. And this is what Campbell said. He said, "God is a metaphor for a mystery that absolutely transcends all human categories of thought." Even the categories of being and non-being. Hold on now. Mm-hmm. You lost me already. Wait, really, what? You can't transcend categories of being and non-being. <laughs> Why not? That's just nonsense. Okay, okay. How can you transcend something that doesn't exist? All right. But let's, let me just finish the okay, quote. Okay. Right? Then, right. then you can complain. I might break in again okay. with some irascible comments. Please do. Those are categories of thought. I mean, it's as simple as that. So it depends on how much you want to think about it, whether it's you doing you any good. 
whether it is putting you in touch with the mystery that's the ground of your own being. If it isn't, well, it's a lie. So half the people in the world are religious people who think that their metaphors are facts. Those are what we call theists. The other half are people who know that the metaphors are not facts, and so they're lies. Those are the atheists. Hmm. So I find this incredibly wishy-washy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, one of Campbell's famous lines that he told his students was, he, uh, you know, Professor Campbell, what should I do with my life? And he'd tell them, follow your bliss. Right. <laughs> right. Is, that, is that Marie Kondo? Marie Kondo? You know who Marie Kondo is? No. Oh, the great sorter, right? You look at a piece of clothing or some other object in your um, home, yeah. and if you're trying to decide whether or not to keep it, yeah. like an old pair of socks, the question you ask is, does this spark joy? Oh, really? If it, You don't know this? No, I'm going to... Trogolodite. I don't have any pairs of socks that spark joy. I'm going barefoot tomorrow. You have to throw them all out. Oh, you take everything you own, you put it in a big pile on yeah. your bed or somewhere else, and you ask, does this spark joy? If yeah. the item doesn't spark joy, you toss it. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is how you simplify your life. Okay. It's like, follow your bliss. Follow your bliss. It's kind of similar. Right. So here's what Campbell, I think, you know, gets kind of squishy and, and a little too new agey for my taste. Right. With this idea that, well, you know, well, what should I do with this, Professor Campbell? Well, if this works for you... Mm-hmm. Roll with it. If it doesn't work for you, well, consider it a, a lie. This seems like it could justify all kinds of behavior that we would consider really immoral and cruel. I I, I agree, right? And so it, it's it's kind of unmoored from any kind of morality, correct? Right. And so I so I think like what I really like about Campbell is I think this way of kind of breaking down a, a legend is really helpful. Mm-hmm. It, it's a really good way to kind of start to kind of get under the hood of, of a narrative. Mm-hmm. When it becomes a life philosophy, that's where he kind of loses. Me. You part ways. Yep. Well, I think that the philosophy or the metaphysics behind these statements, I don't find it all defensible. But, you know, that's because I believe there is something like objective truth and mm-hmm. that reason and logic done properly at least reflect that objective truth. So, again, transcending uh, the categories of being and non-being, Right, so the story of Christ, right, um, has elements that we've seen in this monomyth. Well, without a doubt. For sure. Yeah. And uh, so the question is maybe a chicken and egg question, right? Um, is, the, is the Christ story reflective of this monomyth, or do the, um, the other kinds of myth stories, are they getting at something that's ultimately true, of which the Christ story is the archetype? Right, yeah. And, no. and I take that as more, um, more likely. And in fact... You know, just to put a name to it, um, a guy that I thought was a great critic of literature, maybe not a great philosopher, C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. liked to say that all of these myth stories were deliberate counterfeits of the real story in a kind of deceptive fashion. I don't know if that's provable. That's that's a stretch for me. Well, I don't think deliberate it's, counterfeits. I don't think it's false. I don't think you can falsify it. Mm. Right. I think it, there's something persuasive about the idea. Right. Uh, if one believes, as I do, that the Christian and you do, the Christian story is ultimately true. Mm-hmm. How do you explain these other approximations? Right. So Lewis is onto something, um, not counterfeits in the sense of uh, meant to fool people, perhaps, but reflections. Sure. No, perhaps. I, I'd go along with that. I, I just finished a um, a biography of Tolkien, mm-hmm. of, in which you know Lewis uh, looms large. Correct. They were. They I were... saw a bad movie based on that. Oh, I, yeah. We we should. I, I'd like to talk to you about that. <laughs> Um, but he recounts in that the Bible he talks about Lewis's own conversion to Christianity and and um, this famous line for him where he's he's thinking about like you know these mystery 
narratives. Right. And he, he said something about something like, like this myth of the dying God, it, it actually seems to have happened once. Right. And so like the, so the Christian story is kind of the, the physical embodiment, real, real working out right. of the hero's narrative. Right. There are also some, were you finished? No. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think that Campbell has his finger on something. I think this is the story with a capital T and S. Correct. This is the, the story. And, and I see no harm or anything antithetical to my own faith in seeing this reflected in my own life right. and in many of the stories I read. If anything, it just kind of reminds me, that, yes, this is a story that the world is obsessed with right. for that's good a, reason. That's a good point. Yeah. Another kind of minor point before we wrap up is that, you know, s- some of the profound differences between the Christian story and these myths, they are, you know, at first sight, prima facie differences. They, they seem slight, but they're actually profound. One would be that in many of these catabases, the person doesn't actually die. Right. You know, they like Odysseus, uh, Aeneas. They uh, they descend to the underworld as living persons. Yes. Whereas in the the Christian scriptures, Christ actually dies. Exactly. And that might seem, well, that's just a technicality. But no, there's actually a profound uh, truth behind that. Yeah. That these other stories don't really get to. Right. No, I agree with all of that. Well, Jeff, that takes us right to the end here. Yep. So uh, let's uh, let's give out our thank yous, which yes. are not at all obligatory, but heartfelt. Yes, we have to thank, as always, Mishka, our wonderful engineer, who uh, does all the pulling the levers behind the curtain. The mixing, the cutting, the editing, the yep. splicing and splotching. She does yep. a great job. Thank you, Mishka. She does. Thanks also to uh, Ken Tamplin and Scott Vincent for the... The shredding music. Incredible stuff. Yep. Scott has a new uh, a new album coming out. Uh, I don't know if I haven't heard all of it, just a few tracks. He's a blues guy, kind of mm-hmm. like a Stevie Ray Vaughan. Great stuff. Eddie Van Halen together. And uh, Ken has a vocal academy. If you want to learn how to sing better than anyone else, you can check that out. Yep. And uh, what's coming up next week? Next week, we are going to tackle some uh, Ovidian uh, vignettes. Oh, vignettes. Vignettes. Oh, some Ovidi- so some stories selected from the metamorphoses. Right. Just Which is a massive work. Oh, 245 different mythological stories. Mm-hmm. We're going to pick and choose very carefully. Yes. And just tell a couple, right? Yeah, we'll break them down. And keep the listener in suspense until that time. Yes, we will. And so, Jeff, I believe that uh, we want to say to the listeners, please, you can go to um, Apple iTunes. Please leave us a review if you'd like. Give us some mm-hmm. stars or no stars, whatever you like. Tell your friends about it. We have stickers to distribute. You can check out on our Lurch with Merch page or a nice T-shirt. You know, leave a little tip under the wine glass, so to speak, if you liked the meal so that we can uh, keep doing what we're doing if you enjoy it. Yep. And if you want to drop us a note, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can write to Dave at Dave at Don't forget the V or Jeff at Adnauseum.com. Also, again, don't forget the V. We'd love to hear from you. We love your enthusiasm. We love your ideas. Don't hesitate to drop us a note. We'd love that. And Jeff, you have the gustatory parting shot. Yes, this comes from one Isabel Allende who once said, despite being English, they served an edible meal. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.